Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who was born in Australia, studied in the UK and the US, and has held title positions in France, Australia, and the United Kingdom. Since 2014, he's been the principal conductor and artistic director of the Xi'an Symphony Orchestra in China. It's a great pleasure to welcome Dane Lam. Dane, it is lovely to meet you and to speak with you and to chat with you today. How are you? I'm very happy to be joining you, Mike. Well, that's good. Uh, there's a bit of a time difference. It's 10.30 in the morning on a Monday here, and it's 8.30 in the evening where you are. Where in Australia are you? I am in Brisbane at the moment, in sunny Queensland, but I just returned from from Perth last night, which is two hours behind us. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure what time it is, to be honest. <laughs> well, you spend a lot of time sort of going between there and China. And uh, I know you're in the UK pretty soon, aren't you, as well? So time to, we maybe get on to dealing with time differences as a, as a guest and travelling conductor later on. But you're at home uh, in Queensland, which is where you were born and where you started. I know that you... Uh, the piano, the clarinet, and the saxophone are instruments that you played as a child. Were your parents musical at all? And how did music first come into your world? There, there's never been any professional musicians in my family. My mother and my grandma both played the piano, and my dad played a bit of guitar, I suppose. But but music wasn't really on my radar as a career until I went to high school. I went to a, a fantastic public high school, as in state high school yeah. in in Queensland, uh, that had a really extensive music program, various orchestras, jazz ensembles, wind bands, choirs, small jazz ensembles of all kinds of different levels. And that's where I, I saw somebody conducting for the first time, one of my teachers, and I thought, oh, that might be interesting. And, and and Queensland actually punches far above its weight in Australia in terms of principal players in right. the various state orchestras because of, of the, the fantastic youth music provision here. Well, that's great. I mean, it's a hot topic uh, for me, youth music, and the fact that it's slowly been dying over the last 20 odd years or so and, and seemingly seems to be given a kick in the head yet again quite recently by the UK government um, but it's good that you were in that uh, I mean is it still much the same now in Queensland as it was then when you were studying? As far as I know it's it's the same I don't have a lot to do with it but actually in, in June this year I'm really happy to be returning to conduct um it's called most musically outstanding students and they're the the very best instrumentalists from all over the state and it's a vast state yeah. I, you know you could fit a few uk's into queensland <laughs> yeah. and and they get all together for a week and and we 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 play some music and and so it's just nice to come back and and give back a little bit yes i agree with that um we're going to go on uh well, I'm going to mention the University of Queensland now and probably a lot later because of your post there as um, Associate Lecturer. But you studied at the University of Queensland. Um, did you go primarily as an instrumentalist or did you go, because you, it's listed that your conducting teacher there was Gwyn Roberts. How soon into university did conducting start for you or had it already started before you went? 
Yeah, it, it it had already started. In fact, I I was accepted in into university as a pianist actually, but I'd already started conducting, and it's what I wanted to do because I came along at a time when the Australian government was investing a ton of money into the training of conductors through huh. Symphony Australia. The program doesn't exist anymore, but it was you were able to work with the various state orchestras and chief conductors and their guest conductors in various master courses throughout the year. And uh, so I started that when I was still in high school, actually, right. with with Chris Seaman, who I know has been on, on this show. Yeah, and mentioned teaching and, in Australia as well. Uh, yeah, uh, he yeah. was a huge influence to us, you know, a 17-year-old. And and so to go back to your question, um, UQ, the University of Queensland, were, were really flexible and accommodating my being in this Symphony Australia course, which required quite a lot of interstate travel even then. So I started off as a pianist, but they very graciously allowed me to change my major in second semester of first year because there just was it was taking up all my time anyway mm. well that's good um and as you know because i know you've listened to i think you said most of the episodes which is very kind of you indeed um i always ask about teachers and i've got three names on him possibly two um but two definitely that i've never asked about before what was gwyn roberts like as a teacher um was he as overall holistic or was he very much stick or very much score oh well i was i was very much a beginner at that yeah. stage and Gwyn uh is to this day such a nurturing person he was at a very young age he was the pr principal cellist of the tasmanian symphony orchestra and then he got into conducting moved up to brisbane and conducted the orchestra of the university and and taught conducting and so he sort of guided me through those very early years after I had the initial influence through these you know one week long courses with Symphony Australia he was the steady hand that would sort of translate what all these great, great maestros were telling me because often they were quite contradictory and and he <laughs> would help me absorb a score tell me if I wasn't clear call me out on mannerisms that I was already developing and yeah, and yeah. just just help me uh it, it was a very being exposed to all these international conductors quite early on it could have been very confusing if there wasn't somebody who was steady there yeah I mean that is that is something we all have to negotiate even as instrumentalists you know when you go on to studying at a conservatoire or a university you're you have a primary teacher, but you are put in front of others in masterclass situations. And yeah, the, those conflicting views are something that you need to you need to sort of process and work out. And if you've got somebody there like Gwyn who's going to help you do that for you, that's really helpful, isn't it? Oh, it's so helpful. It's so helpful. And he's still around Brisbane. He still comes to concerts when I conduct here. It's lovely. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. So how long were you at the University of Queensland with Gwyn before you, I'm I'm assuming the chronology is right here, and I'll, I'll, please tell me if it isn't, before you become assistant to Gianluigi Gelmetti uh, with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. How, lo how long were you, was it, did that run back to back? Yeah, there was overlap there, mm. which is another reason 
why UQ was so accommodating in, in letting me major in conducting because it was actually only a few weeks into me starting university out of out of high school and I one of the Symphony Australia modules they called them this week-long master class with was with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and Gianluigi Gelmetti, who at that time was the incoming chief conductor of the Sydney Symphony. And he was also the music director of the Rome Opera. Mm. And so I went along to this masterclass. I really knew very little and um, it went okay. And then I got this phone call at the end of, of the week saying, oh, the maestro would like to meet with you. And so yeah. I went into the lobby of his hotel and, you know, he had this thick Italian drawl. He was Roman. He was larger than life. And and he said to me, you're a very lucky boy. <laughs> Next week, you come with me to the Sydney Opera House, conduct the Sydney Symphony. And then you come with me to Siena to do my master class. And then I spent three summers with him in Siena, several years in Sydney, sharing the podium with him. And he was absolutely my first big influence yeah yeah and, and you look back now and I'm assuming you think yes you were a very lucky boy uh what a lovely way of uh, breaking it to you uh, <laughs> um uh, what was he like I mean again going back to score or stick or both I mean you know uh, by now if you say that he was your first real mentor how much of what he taught you still sticks today well I I find a lot of the things that he used to say in my late teens and early twenties, they didn't really hit home until many, many, many years later. And he, <laughs> he said he wasn't interested in technique, but actually he was, Yeah, he was always, he was always correcting technique, but he was very old school. He, he used to say that, that he didn't have students. He had disciples right. and he had, I used to joke that he had a, 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 a wardrobe, of, of dozens of black smocks because he always wore exactly the same thing every day for rehearsal, for dinner, for concerts. It didn't matter. It was always the same thing. And so his, his masterclass that he held every summer in Siena was a bit like that TV show Survivor. Right. Where he took in all these, these they were active students and there were passive students that were selected after auditions, but it could change at any moment. If you did something that he didn't think was right, and he would he would he would put it out to the passive students who who thinks they could do better, who thinks this tempo is too fast, who thinks this tempo is too slow, and before you know it, you could be out. <laughs> you could be. <laughs> oh, he sounds like a real character. I like people like that. I really do. He used to say. He used to say, after three years with me. Working with a professional orchestra will be like a holiday. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. On from there to Juilliard and a master's with James DePriest, who I know I, th I cannot remember who it was, but I know I've discussed him before. Um, uh, so... We leave Australia. I mean, I know you've been taking trips to Siena and possibly to Rome, um, but now we 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 do the the inevitable thing of leaving Australia and going and living abroad and living in New York. How was that? At first, I was discussing this with somebody the other night, actually, 
as a as a as a boy from Brisbane going to Juilliard and you know you walk past Itzhak Perlman in the hallway or whatever, yeah. I had big imposter syndrome at first and I thought they had made a mistake on the tests or whatever. And you know, you have to take yeah. placement tests when you first arrive as well, once you've been admitted for ear training and for history and for theory. Anyway, they didn't kick me out. <laughs> and the the most fantastic thing about being a conductor at Juilliard was that there were only three of us right. for the whole two year masters course, so we got um, we got uh, forty five minutes to an hour each each week with full orchestra, and so James De Priest, Master De Priest, was was one of the most wonderful things about. Maestro de Priest as a teacher was that he didn't seek to impose his own view of, of how to conduct. You know, there's other, you would mm. know that there's other music schools and there's other conducting pedagogues yes. who, who seek to make you look exactly how they look, little clones of them, but he knew we were all different and he was interested in more in how we thought about the music than, than the way we actually conducted, the way we waved our arms about. And he would, of course, intervene if something wasn't working but he was he was so interesting in in our placement test in our not our placement test in the actual entrance exam before we conducted the orchestra he uh we had these very strange questions that we had to sort of expound upon so one of them was composer is to architect as conductor is to what or we had 10 minutes to write an essay comparing Anton Webern to Gustav Mahler. Right. Yeah. And these were the kind of thing that, that he was interested in. And then, of course, we had to conduct the Rite of Spring with the orchestra. But before that, he just wanted to see how we thought about music and how we, mm. we, how we approached life and people. I'm interested. What was your answer to the first question? Can you remember? Yeah, I can. I said engineer. I still think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pro probably the best answer. I was trying to think. I was going to go for builder as a quick answer, or you know, craftsman. I don't know, but yeah, I think engineer is probably the right answer. I mean, that teaching whole teaching style, I very much agree with. Um, and on a recent interview, uh, another name uh, who's going to crop up in your career also said much the same. Mark Heron about the fact that you know we all we are all different. We all have different body sizes. We all have different uh physiques uh and, and you know whilst there are some fundamentals of conducting that one can uh almost not insist on but one can sort of lay out on the table so much of what we do is so personal um because of the nature of what it is and it, it would be crazy to try and impose something you know it's much different I, my violin teacher I've said it before on the podcast. She was five foot one, and I'm six foot. I have and my hands were almost twice the size of hers. There was no way I could ever be a clone of her, um, and so you know, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't possible. Um, and much the same now. I've t I teach people who are shorter than me, who are you know, uh, uh, and, and and yeah, you just have to talk about some fundamentals, but then the rest of it, you, then they need to work it out themselves. That's right. You know, you see what doesn't work, but then yeah. it's so funny, isn't it, how people think that people who are not intimately involved with with the orchestral world think that conducting is some kind of code where one gesture means a g sharp another one means an a flat yeah. and 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 you know you have to explain to them that that these are these are signals physical signals that have to be understood instinctively and immediately yeah and and then you wonder how 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 can any two conductors do it the same way
Exactly. And, and I think that's also part of the thing when we come to guest conduct is that, you know, no, none of us, I would say, uh, have a hundred percent hit rate on everybody we guest conduct. There are certain things you do instinctively as a gesture because you know that it works with 85% of the orchestras you've ever worked with. But that could be one of the 15% where they look at you and think, well, what does that mean? I mean, there are, there are when I teach, I talk about uni <laughs> exactly. universal body language, you know, the fact that, you know, if I put my hand and palm out in front of you, it means stop or stop what you're doing or... And there are certain things that transmit. Mm -hmm. I was watching a concert on the TV last night, and my wife came in and said, what does that gesture mean? I said, well, I think it means this. I'm an ex-orchestra player of 22 years. I wasn't sure. I said, but he's getting the result that he wants, and that's that's the <laughs> point. You know, um, it, it is it, it is endlessly fascinating, and I think for the anybody who's not in our world, who's never played for a conductor or actually conducted, I think they are fascinated by what it means. And I think there are times the answer is, I don't know, but it's working. Yeah, that's right. Cool. Going on, as I've just mentioned him, we then leave Juilliard and go to the, I would say in the UK, the, the place where, you know, the, the best programme has been historically for the last, oh, I don't know how many, many years, and to the Royal Northern College of Music with Mark and Clark, and, or two Marks if you include Mark Elder, uh, yeah. and the Junior Fellowship. And I think, you know, we can safely say that there is a commonality between what James DePriest was saying and what Mark Heron and Clark were saying. But how was it? Were there, were there any things in there that suddenly turned a light bulb on or turned one off, maybe? I don't know. Uh, well, I always say that I learned how to rehearse in Manchester. Yeah. Um, I came away from Juilliard having a pretty, a technique that worked. Mm. I was able to get the results that I wanted to. And and I, I came to Manchester to audition for the Junior Fellowship. And it's quite a lot of rounds. It's quite intense. And I remember Mark Elder just pushing me to listen. What do you hear? What do you hear? And how mm. are you going to make it better? Yeah. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? So simple. And it is very simple, I suppose. But it had never really been put to me in that way before. And and because of the nature of the junior fellowship, you're working you're working in opera, you're working with wind bands, you're working with orchestra, you're working with, with singers, you're doing everything. And so it was just wonderful to spend time with Mark and Mark and Clark to always be pushed to say, right, I've heard five things that you should pick up on after that first run through. What are they? Go. And 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 you you really do think on the fly. They talk about psychology. They talk about rehearsal technique. And of course, I, I, I can't rehearse the same way that Mark Elder no. rehearses, but I can use my ear, aspire to use my ear in the same way that Mark Elder does and, and then try and make it better. Mm. Well, that's the whole point, isn't it? I've said it to students in the past. Also, when I taught the violin about listening harder to your, what the sound that you're producing, you know, don't just you're not just listening to check that A is it the right note and B is it in tune. It's to do with how the note connects at the beginning and the end to the previous and, and the following note. It's how that part is part of a of a phrase. It's, you know, and, and the same applies when we're conducting. We can stand there and think, is this together? Are these the right notes? But that's not enough. 
you know, no. uh, you know, you need to think about the the balance, and that can be a very personal thing. Balance. You need to think about the phrasing, and again, that's a very personal thing. But also with the psychology of somebody maybe playing a solo, uh, it's a very, very, very important thing. And I think some conducting students, the penny never drops, uh, and I think that's a shame. Same with it instrumental never does. students; they just look very pretty. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they uh, look very good, mm. but there's nothing behind it. Yeah, exactly true. Absolutely true. Um, yeah, it's very easy to stand in front of a very good orchestra where, you know, at that stage of your life, the RNCM Symphony Orchestra, maybe even the Halle and the BBC Phil and people like that, and just stand there and go, this is great. I've, I've got nothing to say. Well, they don't want yeah. that. They want you to say something, <laughs> and they want it to. They want to take it to a next level. You know, there is no such thing as perfection. Take it to another place. Take it to a, you know, make it yours or make it better. Um, yeah, very interesting. It sounds like that was the final bit of the jigsaw on top of years of people talking about technique and then re- you know different ways of rehearsing in different countries and all of that. Um, it sounds like it was fascinating. Um, on and out uh, into the big wide world, the scary moments when we're no longer a student, Dame. Um, we've all been there. Um, and you you have two associate, well, two, one assistant conductor of Orchestra Nationale de France with Kurt Mazur, and an associate conductor of Opera Holland Park. Um, again, to me, that seems like the perfect sort of starting first rung on the ladder kind of thing. You know, an assistant to a great orchestra with an, an you know an international great conductor and then also an association with a with a group um how did you find those um you know flitting between the two of those or working as as early steps were they were they the right things yeah i think they were they were wonderful things because you could work in in different genres and with different groups of musicians it was always so interesting to watch somebody of the stature of Kurt Mazur work with the very great orchestras of the world, whether it was the Orchestra Nationale or the New York Philharmonic or the LPO. Uh, I mean, you, with these great conductors, you, you have to sort of try and distill hmm. what works because you, again, like I was saying before, you can't rehearse an orchestra like Kurt Mazur used to rehearse the LPO or the New York Philharmonic or whatever. And and just Maestro Mazur, his 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 depth of of connection to these these really central uh, central European composers like Beethoven and Mendelssohn and Dvorak, I still have my scores littered with things that KM does this here, KM does that there. Uh, so it was just wonderful to to really see what a top flight maestro did with top flight orchestras. Yeah, and yeah. then Holland Park was. Uh, I'd had some great experiences doing opera at the RNCM, but then going to do it in London at Holland Park, uh, which became a real musical home actually after the initial uh, associate uh, conductor thing. Um, it's a fantastic place to work. James Clutton still still runs the place and he manages to get really excellent singers who love working there because it's a great company to work for to really put on opera at, uh, at an excellent level and to learn how to accompany to learn you know lessons that I learned there I find I find myself coming back to all the time you have an ideal tempo in your head for 
a Rossini aria or a Rossini ensemble, really complex coloratura stuff. And you think, no, I want it fast. I want it fast. And the music staff there, the repetiteurs, but one of them in particular would come and say, look, do you want it to be your tempo or do you want it to be right? what a good line i like that uh that's wonderful uh can i linger on something you said earlier on about it it's impossible to rehearse like kurt mazur and i want to make this clear to the non-playing non-conducting listeners that i have that i know i have the reason being is that kurt mazur rehearsed like he did because of years and years and years of experience of his life conducting great orchestras but you know his own journey from wherever he started from until the end if we started to copy people like that it's insincere it's not you you're you know you're not rehearsing you have to rehearse using your own experience your own experiences and so yours have been watching Kurt Mazur but you could never rehearse like him because of that you know because you haven't had his experiences that's right isn't it that's what that's basically what you're saying exactly and 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 he was at the very end of his life when I met him. And so he was older than everybody in the room, more experienced, more famous than everybody in the room. So he could even treat the New York Philharmonic like children. And 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 if imagine if if I went in as a 20-something-year-old conductor and started treating orchestras like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not going to happen. Um, well, uh, it could happen, but it would not be a very good career move. <laughs> <laughs> The first thing, uh, which is basically yours, is 2014, you become principal conductor of the Xi'an Symphony Orchestra in China. How did that first come about? I mean, I know we all go and guest conduct all over the, the world and end up in some weird and wonderful places. But was that um, uh, was that a sort of a, a love at first sight thing? Or was it a, a long relationship that built and built to end up with you being the boss? It was pretty much a love at first sight thing. It was very, it was out of the blue. I was contacted by um, a musician colleague with whom I'd worked in Manchester, actually, who's from Xi'an. And he said, oh, the Xi'an Symphony is looking for a, a principal conductor. Would would you be interested? I said, yeah, okay, sure. I didn't expect it was, I didn't expect I'd get a phone call or anything like that. And then I got an email saying, oh, would you like to come and, and conduct a concert with us. And I said, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Still didn't, I still didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah. And then they flew me out there. I conducted them and then they offered me the job. And then uh, it was the start of this wonderful relationship because it was a very young orchestra. It had only been around for not even two years when I took over. And it was mostly young players as well. Almost all Chinese players probably about half of them were were from Xi'an. And, and so everything we did was for the first time, first time for the orchestra, first time for the city, which is one of the most ancient cities in China. It was the very first capital of China, actually. Mm. And um, so we did the first, the city's first Beethoven cycle. We did the first Brahms cycle, Mahler symphonies, the first staged opera. And, it was really a really fantastic opportunity to because you don't have I didn't have the benefit of of 
of this that you get in established orchestras, this corporate experience of how to play Beethoven or how to play Brahms. Mm, and so mm. I had to really work out in my head, okay, so what what do I think makes Beethoven Beethoven and what makes Brahms Brahms? Yeah, I mean, that's that's fascinating that an orchestra was so young in its life that and, and as you said, that they had no corporate memory even of you know how to play mm -hmm. some of the great composers um what sort of uh i mean you know but being such a young orchestra what are they like in or what, what what are they like what were they like in rehearsal at that time i mean had things sort of transferred from the west in inverted commas about how to behave in, in rehearsals uh, you know um what to expect uh, from conductors what not to expect i mean what was it like just the orchestral discipline of of the orchestra when you first started there yeah it's funny you asked that mike because when i first arrived there wasn't much orchestral discipline to hmm. speak of yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the third viola player would say, sorry, I'm not going to be at rehearsal this afternoon. I've got to go and teach. And that was pretty common. People would rock up late. People would turn up not having a clue how to play their music. And so these really simple culture changes to the orchestra improved the playing immeasurably. This is before any rehearsing or anything like that, you know, yeah. just changing the culture of professionalism in the orchestra changed the sound yeah and and these were very technically adept players so there was a lot of possibility once we were all rowing in the same direction mm. i mean to some degree this feels like almost the perfect gig in the fact that you've got you know a, a room full of talented musicians who've only been playing together for two years and you can come in and you can make them, you know, to use a footballing analogy, you can make them play your formation, your tactics. You can press or not press. You can have, you know, you can basically do exactly what you want. It's different from if you join an orchestra as a music director and they've been alive for 60, 100, 150 years because of the corporate you know, way that an orchestra is, it it will take longer for them to take on your formations, take on who's taking the free kicks, all of that sort of stuff. With an orchestra like this, it feels like it's almost the perfect gig, but you have to really work hard at, at getting that to, to happen, don't you? You've got to work very, very hard. And, and, and because there's no sort of corporate sensibilities, you have to be very you've got no checks and balances on your power as a conductor in a way, because, yeah. you know, when you conduct, when you conduct an established orchestra, if you do something dumb, normally they won't follow you. Yes. Or they'll cover it up very graciously. But here I used, I, I used to record everything I did in Xi'an really just to listen back, to make sure that I was, that, that the, that, the sound and the intonation and the ensemble and the interpretations and the style, everything was, was good. Uh, but it was really great to be able to develop an understanding. And so, so after a few years, there wasn't that much talking required, actually. They really knew what was expected of them and how to make music together and, and the greatest compliment was was when 
we had visiting soloists and we had some really great visiting soloists because they, they would do the China tour and they would always compliment the Xi'an orchestra on, on how they listen. Mm. And I, I was really, I found, I, I was very proud of that. Well, that's great. Um, it's interesting you're talking about, and I hadn't, and again, something I hadn't really thought about, but it made it jog my memory. Yesterday I, I edited an episode uh, for my Patreon page where I, Josh Joshua Wallerstein and I chatted and I asked him 10 new questions for Patreon and we got talking about the differences between choral conducting and orchestral conducting and he was saying that you know a chorus seems to want to follow you much 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 more trustingly than an orchestra was and he actually said and that's what reminded me of this he said if you screw up with a professional orchestra they have the corporate ability to look at you and go, no, we're not doing that. We're not going over the cliff there because you screwed up. We're just going to carry on doing what we should be doing. Whereas a choir will go over the cliff with you if they're following you and you suddenly screw up. It sounds like you had the ability there to quite easily drive off the cliff if you screwed up because they were going to follow your every move, which you know you don't have if you could conduct Absolutely. the Liverpool Phil or the LPO. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that puts pressure really on you. Um, uh, but it does mean that it means that they probably will be great accompanists quite quickly because they're, they're willing to follow you. They really do follow and they really do listen. And it is, it, it, it was scary, especially at the beginning to think, well, you know, every, they really are dependent on, on, on everything that I do, but it was a great place to, to really get, get deep into all this repertoire in somewhere totally out of the way. I mean, people talk about these superstar Wunderkind conductors now not being able to develop in obscurity in, in some, some C grade uh, German opera house. But yeah. I tell you what, if you go to China, you have a great chance to just develop under the radar, trial this repertoire and see where it takes you. Yeah. Um, it seems almost inevitable because of where you currently are and where you were born that the the subject of travel is going to come up um and looking ahead uh, i mean you've probably you must have been there already but looking ahead your life is going to be xian in china queen opera queensland where you're associate music director and resident conductor and also have have a position back at the university and then in uh, later this year you start as the boss in hawaii now, okay, let's pick three random places on the planet and and see if we can <laughs> we can be, become a commuter between three of the most vastly uh, far away places. You must have some coping strategies, Dane, to do with time differences, to do with jet lag. Um, do you do you and your manager build in as much time as possible when you get there, or do you just have to cope with with it? You know, within twenty four hours, you are conducting the first rehearsal. How do you manage? If if it's possible, I will always tr try and and arrive a couple of days at least early. There's nothing worse than getting in at ten o'clock at night and then having to be at rehearsal at nine thirty or ten o'clock the next morning. It's horrible and it's not fair on anybody really. Mm. So if there's time, then I'll then I'll make it work. I've become I've become quite adept at hacking frequent flyer programs. So, so I've got all kinds of spreadsheets of the best ways to accumulate points and the best credit cards to have to accumulate status with various airlines. So you've got a better chance of getting upgraded or you don't have to arrive at the airport as early or if something goes pear-shaped in your travels, then you're looked after a bit better. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, it, it, it is it's getting it's getting harder the older I get. There was a time when I it was actually before the pandemic when I was living in London and dividing my time between London, Xi'an and Australia. I mean, they did some absolutely crazy things like fly from London to Australia for to do, you know, three days of rehearsals in a concert, then fly back to London to do a rehearsal and then go to Xi'an and do a week of concerts or whatever. It was <laughs> crazy. <laughs> and so I'm trying to 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 temper all that now really but somebody once told me that that if you put your feet in the soil when you get somewhere it helps you to adjust and it, it is a maybe it is mumbo jumbo but i always try and, and go barefoot somewhere on the beach in hawaii or or you know through the bush in australia when i when i get somewhere just to sort of feel connected to the place i think that you know the <laughs> The metaphor I would use of similar thing is I have always, I mean, I've, I've never really struggled with jet lag and, and things like that. And I wonder whether this is the reason why the minute I sit on the plane, I change my watch and uh, to the place where I'm going to and always try and imagine that that's what the time is. Because the great thing about planes is that you know, once the blinds are down, you have no idea what the, what the time actually is, whether it's day outside or not. And that's always been my coping strategy, you know, similar to put walking barefoot on the ground is I make sure that I mentally have walked barefoot. You know, I am now in the place I'm flying to. Um, and I mean, it's a, it works for me, whether it will carry on working the older I get, I don't know, but it's such an important point that you, <laughs> you make not to get there. I've had a few, like we all have, you know, travels have, have been delayed. I've got there at one in the morning and I'm on at nine 30, you know, the next, the, the same yeah. morning. It's just horrendous. Um, yeah. And I had that once I was bumped off a flight and going back to your frequent flyer thing, you know, this is, these are, these are first world problems, but it does help if you've got frequent flyer miles, you can at least check in in business rather than even if you're not flying in it. And that, you know, and then you get looked after a bit. But I was bumped off a, a flight to Buenos Aires and ended up going 24 hours later, which meant that I arrived oh, I arrived the same morning that I was due to rehearse. And it that first rehearsal, it just felt horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And you think, this is not fair on anybody. No, it's not fair. And you hope people are sort of sympathetic. But, but I, I don't know that orchestras are sympathetic or that they even have to be, really, because conductors are so jet-setting these days that that it's it's sort of par for the course that people just fly in i mean it's not quite like gergiev but still <laughs> no exactly yeah well um uh, it, it might be worth pointing out that uh, at the moment he's probably not he's probably not getting quite as many frequent flyer miles as he used to no. <laughs> but, but anyway we're, we're, let's not l uh, linger on that uh, I mentioned it just now that you know you you've get got frequent a... flyer miles in a private jet. Well, <laughs> exactly. Very good point. <laughs> well, uh, I suppose you know. I, may, I don't know. Maybe Putin's got his own loyalty program. Uh, <laughs> discuss anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, I just mentioned the fact that you got this position back at the University of Queensland, and I read somewhere in one of your bios, either in your agent or on your own website, that that will involve teaching. Now, we've mentioned so many names and, and you've had such a lot of experience of being taught or mentored by some great names and some lesser known people, but they've still very much um, uh, impacted on your life. When you teach, do you have a sort of style or ethos? 
do you always think, you know, uh, about the James DePriest way of, you know, uh, you do you be you and I'll sort of mold you and shape you? Um, and do you have any fundamentals that you insist on? I think knowledge of the score is really important. It's it's uh, I'm I was really surprised when I started teaching that I would say in general, maybe it's just the students I had, but <laughs> but I, I think it's pretty common that they didn't know the scores well enough. You know, they could sort of hum along to a recording or something, but but and they probably practice to recordings. And recordings are great and they really inform what we do. But if you can't conjure up the 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 sonic picture in your mind, then how on earth are you ever going to put it into your hands? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a big thing that I suppose that is a universal thing that I do insist on and is knowing the score. And, and so I sort of help them analyze and, and prepare a score in the way that I that works for me, just because I remember when I was coming through, especially going to Siena with Gelmanti, and there were something like 40 pieces, including big full-length symphonies. You know, it's the first time I did, you know, Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn or the Beethoven symphonies or the Tchaikovsky symphonies. I had no idea how, you know, as an 18-year-old going to Siena for the first time and you look at, at, at L'Après-Midi, how the hell do you conduct it? I had no idea, mm. no idea at all. And so I, I do help them prepare scores. I just show them how I do it and they can do it. They can continue using my, my method or not. And then when it comes to the hands, as long as it's clear, as long as it says something and conveys what they want to convey, that's all I care about really. Yeah. Well, you've just dipped your toe into the 11th question, uh, which you know <laughs> is coming anyway about score study. So how do you, are you a, um, somebody who's, who uses any piano skills or are you an inner ear person? And as you well know, I'm interested in whether you are a scribbler or a non-scribbler. Are you a red, blue and black? Um, and and what's interesting about that is you just mentioned it yourself. You know, I do the same. I offer them my, this is my system. This is why I do it. This is how I do it. But please don't, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. As long as you've learned the score, it doesn't matter whether your, your score's plastered with stuff or not. Or is it, well, it's completely blank. You've got to learn the score. But how do you do it? Well, I I generally don't use a piano, although if I have one handy, I will pull it out and play play very badly through a vocal mm. score of an opera. Or if it's if it's, you know, particularly crunchy harmonically, I will just sort of play it at the piano. But you know as well as I do, half the time on the road, you've got no access to a piano anyway. No. So, so it's it's a good way to 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 work on those muscles in your inner ear. Um, so I do write on my scores, probably less so than I used to, and for many 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 years now, it's always been a two B pencil. That's it, no color, just a two B pencil. And for me, most of the time, it depends on how the piece sort of ticks over its own accord, but for most pieces. I work out the phrases. It mm. just, it just, and I rule a big line. I don't even rule. I just freehand, just scribble a line. It's much quicker yeah. down the whole score. And it, it's for some reason, it just helps me organize in my own head. This, the, the, 
the micro and the macro architecture of the piece. So, and then I'll, I'll, I'll write in salient details, some important instruments or, or dynamics or tempo markings or beat patterns if it's, if it's very complex. Um, but, you know, that 2B pencil is not, it's not as dark as a 4B and it's not like I can easily refer to them yeah. when I'm actually in rehearsal. So it's more of a just a making conscious of what I'm discovering about a score. It's funny, I was doing exactly the same. I do use a ruler, but in the half an hour uh, before we, we we met this morning, or this evening for you, I was doing exactly the same. I was drawing in some, you know, every four bars, and then there was a three-bar phrase, and then there was, you know. And mm -hmm. I don't do it in every score because, you know, some scores are always four bars long, but sometimes you just need that grid reference, and it helps you. And um, it's, yeah, it, it, I, I've often said it, you know, I don't think my missus ever really understood how much time I would be spending in here learning this stuff. Um, because before, you know, I started <laughs> conducting, I was a violinist who used to play for five or six hours a day and I never practiced at home because I never needed to. Um, but uh, you do have to do your, <laughs> spend your hours in your study with your scores, don't you? It's simple as that. Whether it's drawing red horizontal lines across breaking up the systems as I do or the four bar, you know, phrasings or whatever it is, it takes time. Yeah. I don't, I mean, do you do you enjoy it? I know some people say they love spending time with scores, but that's not my favorite part of the job. My favorite part is is actually being with people. But I know we have to study the scores. I don't know. It do depends. You, you like it, it? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, I did a a concert quite, uh, very recently with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, which was twenty one small items from the James Bond film franchise. That's twenty one mm -hmm. small scores. And, you know, most of them are quite easy to conduct. They're all arrangements, but they still needed markings in. And that felt like a chore because I just wanted to get out there and conduct the two soloists and my, you know, my favourite orchestra and conduct the concert. However, there are pieces that are sitting on the shelves behind me that I've yet to conduct that I absolutely adore. And those scores are completely clean because I've yet to conduct them and I've yet to be asked to conduct them. But when I do, I will I will love pouring over those scores and finding out and going doing some historical research and working out the phrasings. And and so yes, there are times I I I could get lost in in a score for hours in this room because it's a score that I deeply adore and I've been asked to conduct for the first time. Um I've got a couple next to me. I've never conducted the four last songs. I'm doing that quite soon. And, you know, oh, I will, I will just get lost in that. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, where, and I remember the first time I was asked to conduct Marla 5, which is in the same concert as the four last songs. And that score is, you know, I I spent hours. I just, you know, look up and think, oh, my God, it's five o'clock. I've, I've been in here since 10. What happened to lunch? You know, that's what it's like with a score that you love. Whereas there are others you just think, well, I've just got to get this done because... Actually, the most exciting thing mm -hmm. to come is to just get there and conduct them, you know. Um, and that concert was extremely exciting. I couldn't wait to get there and do the rehearsal and do the concert. Um, but, yeah, that was a more of a chore because you've got 21 little things. You've still got to write in the tempo marking, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And the older you get, you know, I need to see things in red and blue because my eyesight is not what it was. So it's just something popping off the page helps me out. So I do have to do it. I have to spend the time. But yeah, it's a very valid question. Very valid. Are you a young conductor, thirsty for knowledge and wanting to discover more about the world of conducting? Then my Patreon page is there for you. I'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and an ex-orchestral player. 
and I offer you the chance to ask me any question any time of the day. For instance, you might like to ask me how to mark up a score, as we've just been discussing. When you subscribe, you will gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles and much more. If you pay for the whole year, then you'll gain a 10% discount, and if you're a student, contact me directly and there will be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, and from just £5 a month, you gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Dane Lamb. Dane, as somebody who's listened to many, and again, I thank you for doing so, of my episodes, you know what's coming now. It's unavoidable. I do indeed. Yeah, yeah which is good. Um, but still, uh, the you know important thing for us to traverse... And it's the 10 questions. And as you know, I always start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, I do love being in nature and I love the sound of the ocean, but I also love scuba diving. And <gasps> I still will never the fir- forget the first time that I went under the ocean. And it is so noisy. It really is like a metropolis. Fish swimming everywhere, chomping coral, having little fights, the sound of whales sometimes so i would sound uh, i would say my my the sound i love is the the underwater sound of the ocean and the sound that i really hate and it's 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 become worse with the advent of mobile phones is people listening to music or videos obnoxiously loud or even audible if i'm honest without headphones on the subway on the tube or in public parks or on beaches hate it oh my god to pacify a child on a flight give them a tablet and they oh. play oh yeah i've come so close to saying you you can't afford headphones or you know ah oh. and i'm so glad you said scuba diver because i've been waiting for somebody to uh who's been uh who's a scuba diver for hundreds of episodes the nearest i got was otto tausk recently who's a massive swimmer and I said to him, have you ever done? And he said, no, he's never done it. And he's ne- he's thinking about it. But I agree with you. I, I, uh, My wife and I went to the Maldives on holiday and I'd never even snorkeled. And we snorkeled a lot on that holiday. And you're right. It's really noisy under there, isn't it? Um, I'd never realized it. But yeah. what a fascinating answer. Brilliant answer. That's sort of, you're the first in 100 and whatever episodes. So thank you. That's brilliant. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah, that's good. I've been waiting for a scuba diver. That's that's wonderful. So I can't believe there's no other... I mean, it's a quite a nice thing to do when you're guest conducting, depending on where you're guest conducting. Well, yeah. I mean, Hawaii is a great place for it. But actually, <laughs> when I was in Orkney once, I decided to learn how to dive with a dry suit. So you can really scuba dive anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah, it helps if you're going to be the music director of the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> that really does help. Um, well, let's see if you would spend your 24 hours free underwater. But how would you like to spend your 24 hours free? Well, it does. It does involve the ocean. It definitely would involve the beach. There's there's, there's an island off the coast of Brisbane, my, my hometown. It's called Stradbroke Island. And... Uh, it was, it is the, the second largest sand island in the world. And it's not connected by a bridge or anything. You've got to take a boat or a vehicle ferry over there. 
and it's gorgeous. It's got the most untouched beaches, wonderful fresh seafood. So I would start the day with a bushwalk around the point and you can walk through the through the gorge and look down. You can see manta rays and dolphins. And if it's in season, there are whales. Then I would have a lovely breakfast with a nice coconut flat white from this little coffee coffee van down at the beach. And then I would probably cook a nice long lunch to be enjoyed with family and friends on a veranda of a beach house overlooking the ocean. Fall asleep gazing up at the stars because you can see lots of stars out there. Yeah. Well, that sounds amazing. And I, I think what's wonderful about the people who do listen to this podcast, who they, I then interview, is that you've probably been thinking about that answer for quite a long time. Um, and it, it's a wonderful answer. <laughs> it's nice. You give us you give us advance notice of these questions. <laughs> I do. That's, that is very true. Um, which means that you've probably been thinking quite a lot about question four. Uh, five, of course, you know that is one that's a contentious one. But question four is, can you name your favourite conductors of yesteryear? Well, actually, I, I found question four harder than question five in a way because yeah. there are so many conductors I admire in, in this this plethora of, of repertoire, really. Yeah. Um, so, of course... My my teachers, Gelmati and James De Priest and, and Mazur, they all influenced me in, in various ways. But when I was a young conductor and and having to just to absorb a lot of music very quickly at Juilliard and in Siena especially, I always went to the recordings of Claudio Abado because I always found that they would be invariably tasteful, well thought out have some element of 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 historical informedness if yeah. that's a word yeah yeah to, to them and and actually when i got into juilliard i i booked tickets to carnegie hall he was opening the season of carnegie hall with the lucerne, lucerne festival orchestra doing marla three and so that's the first thing i do when i did when juilliard offered me the place and then he cancelled and then he died a couple of years after that so i never saw about our life. Shame. Uh, I never did either. Um, and yeah, he's he's sort of in a in a list of people I wished I'd played for. You know, I started playing in 1991 when he was very much still alive. Him, High Tink, and Clyber, I would love to have played for. Um, oh yeah. And you're right about his recordings. You know, often I feel that it's not you're not going to be suddenly shocked by by thinking. Well, what on earth have you done that for? Yeah. It feels informed. You know, his interpretive moments feel natural, feel... Uh, but there is al always a sort of faithfulness, another word that probably doesn't exist, to the score, which, again, you know, if you're learning a, a score for the first time, you want somebody who's going to be fairly faithful to it and not just ride roughshod over the stuff that was written all these years ago. And there was sort of an, an easy lyricism, an easy flow to them. So many of us as young conductors really, really revere Bernstein, but almost always, especially later, his later recordings, I just find them very, very slow. Yeah, yeah. His recording, which seems to be lauded of the Leningrad Symphony, I cannot abide. 
uh, because the the march, you know, the central march of the first movement of Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony is so slow. Oh yes. God! Yeah, <laughs> he could get away with it, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. You know, and but you're right, absolutely right. Um, yeah, you, we all listen to a lot of recordings. I'm sure we all do. And as many people have said in the past on the podcast, if you don't listen to recordings, you're a liar. Uh, I yeah. I agree with that. Every, all of us do because we want to know what other people are doing. And also, we want to look back on what the greats of the past did. We you know we'd be stupid not to listen to a Bruno Valter recording of a Mahler symphony if he made one, because he knew Mahler. Um, yes, exactly. So, you know, we all go back and listen. Uh, and yeah, if you find somebody like Abado, who more often than not ticks the boxes for you, brilliant. Um, yeah, that it makes perfect sense. Now, you just said you found question five easier. Um, uh, and so who would be your favourite current conductor or conductors? Yeah, well, I'm not really afraid of offending people because there's, there's a lot of people I admire. I, Of course, I admire Mark Elder, who really taught me to open my ears. Yeah. And of people that I, I haven't really had a, a close association with, um, one of them would be Ivan Fischer, mm. uh, who I, I, I saw in concert quite a few times and then he actually came to Xi'an with the Budapest Festival Orchestra because we have a, a, an amazing concert hall in Xi'an just a great acoustic and yeah. so I was able to sit in on his rehearsal there as well and, and go and just say hello after the concert and just his way of working with the orchestra and building this orchestra that that obviously loves working together and loves the music and loves him he would he would have the courage to try different orchestral formations, for example, like having the bassoon sit right up the front of the stage next to him in Vorjak Symphony, in fact. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a bit mad, really, but yeah. it worked. And, and then, and then he would have he would have the string players play an encore, and the rest of the orchestra sing it. Uh, it. It was really inspiring to see how he 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 approaches music but also his his recordings and his performances live that i've seen of things like the Mahler symphonies the brahms symphonies or the brahms hungarian dances they're so idiosyncratic in the very best way i don't think he's trying to be different but by the same time by the same token he's not trying to regurgitate mm. anything and the other conductor who i admire uh, uh is is gian andrea nozeda mm who was at the BBC Philharmonic when I was at the RNCM and, and he's turned up in various places of the world I've been. And I just love his animal energy. It's just electric. Yeah. It's yeah. really electric. And, and what, when it works, so it really galvanizes an orchestra. I played for him on a couple of occasions. One in particular, I remember because I was on trial for the principal second violin job. So I was leading the section and we were playing, uh, part of the program was Vorjak's Water Goblin. To, you, okay. to be that close to him, you could you could feel the energy. I mean, you you could feel the sweat actually bounce off yes, him yes, onto yes, you. I was going to say. <laughs> but you could feel the, the energy. Um, absolutely. I loved playing for him. I thought he was, he was, he really made me want to play for him. And Fisher, I, you're right. You know, the idiosyncrasy uh, of, of his recordings of, um, of uh, his performances, I was fascinated when he took on 
the the Concertgebouw conducting masterclasses that you can watch online to see how yeah. he thought about conducting. And actually, he thinks about it quite deeply. Uh, there were quite a few things on there which he, he said, and I thought, oh, I agree with that, absolutely, wholeheartedly. I, it was a fascinating insight into how the man thinks. Um, and as you said, I don't think any of it is idiosyncratic on purpose. I think it's just him being naturally him, and that's how it comes out. Yeah, I think so. And actually, I just thought of someone else, if you'll permit me one more. Please. Uh, um, so the other conductor I would add to, to that list is Rene Jacobs. Ah. Uh, I I have done and continue to do a lot of Mozart operas. And they're very dear to me. And I think the way that, that Rene Jacobs approaches the Mozart operas and approaches the shaping of recitatives and arias and ensembles. They, again, they are idiosyncratic and you can't copy what, what Rene Jacobs does, but they are very personal. And, and I think that's great for us to be challenged sometimes into these, these works that have been, that have been performed so many times. And, and if I'm, if I'm want to listen to a Mozart opera, I'll, I'll often go, to to Jacob's recording and and I just find them so refreshing in I, I don't want to be uncollegial but he's dead so uh I, Carl Boehm I just can't I can't sit through his Mozart I just I just uh, it's leaden and humorless mm, yeah yeah well the the point about listening to somebody's per, really personal views on things is that <sighs> It makes you then sit and look at your score if you're listening to a Mozart opera, or I did it with with uh, Roger Norrington's Beethoven symphonies. You know, I'd sit there and think, look, I understand why you're doing that. I understand that's your personal point of view. I totally disagree with it. The next sentence you have to then say as a conductor is, but what do you think about it, Mike? And, or <laughs> Dane, you know, therefore, you know, I have to form an opinion myself. I cannot just sit there and let it be a bland, you know, as you said, humorless Mozart or whatever. I think what they do is they challenge us to think, whether we agree with their yeah, personal views or, or not. Yeah. And, you know, you put yourself on the line if you do something a little different. We, I, I know that orchestras want a vision, but, but sometimes if you go too far outside the boundaries of what is in good taste people look at you very strangely sometimes unless you've won their trust yeah uh but it's nice to i, I think people like Rene Jacobs or even Ivan Fisher give me courage yeah <laughs> that's a very good point i like that number 6 what is the hardest work you've ever conducted or works i've often had more than one well the hard performance I've ever had to do was was quite a few years ago in Xi'an and we were we were performing Mahler 4. It was the first Mahler symphony we'd ever performed together. And um at that same time my grandma, with whom I was very close growing up, died back in Australia. But in Xi'an it's it's hard to get somebody to come and conduct Mahler 4 with a couple of days notice. Yeah. And 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 I knew that my grandma wouldn't want me to come back for her funeral, and and leave these these wonderful musicians in the lurch in Xi'an. And so, uh, when it came to our performance, I gave a speech and I, I dedicated it to my grandma, 
And boy, did those players, they really, really played, especially the slow movement. I mean, yeah. it was just, it was, it was something very, very special, but it was really, it was really difficult to do at the time. I bet. I bet it was. Um, I think you, you and I have a similar view. I think, you know, you did what she would have wanted you to have done. Um, mm -hmm. You know, by leaving Yorkster in the lurch and going back, you were only pleasing the people who are still here alive, um, uh, you know, social convention and that sort of thing. However, however tough it must have been at the time. Um, but yeah, that must be, it must be very, very, very difficult. I personally think you did the right thing, but you know, I'm sure there are other listeners who probably thought, well, well you know, but no, I, I, that must've been really tough. Um, you know, uh, and, and especially that slow movement, uh, it's so beautiful and so sort of timeless and floating and ethereal and yeah, uh, yeah, that's that that that's tough. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, and and good on your orchestra for you know. Uh, I mean, it's it's difficult when emotion gets involved with music making that sometimes it can it can actually go quite badly wrong in the other direction, can't it? Um, well, you know, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. That, that that's a concert you're never going to forget, and uh, no wonder you chose that as your answer. Absolutely. Uh, number seven, uh, and let's face it, you do some travelling, Dane. When you travel abroad <laughs> to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I take a very special, well, not that special. It's you know, you bought it off the internet, but it's a pillow that's that that it just it just suits the way I sleep. It. It has two ways, you know, if you're sleeping on your back, you have it one way. If you're sleeping on your side, you have it another way. And it's quite bulky, but it comes with a little vacuum bag. So you, you can get it down quite small. It's amazing mm. how small it goes. And so it's so hard going to some of these hotels, particularly in Europe, actually, with the these the softest, the softest, most flimsy, thinnest pillows you've ever had. And it's so important the way you sleep. So mm. that that's one little travel hack I've picked up. I always take a pillow with me. I'd quite like you to send me the link for that pillow, please. Uh, I've not long, uh, a few weeks ago, I spent two weeks in Cologne in Germany working with an orchestra I absolutely love. But German pillows, they just seem to be a sort of cloth bag full of air. There's, yes. no, there's, there's nothing inside them at all. I ended up with sort of three pillows that were basically enveloped my head because they not, wasn't giving me any support at all. So yes, after this, I, I would like the link to buy one of those. If I can vacuum pack it back into a, my suitcase, that would be brilliant. Yeah, happily send it. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Number eight, as you know, this can be real or fantasy. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Um, I think is the one thing I would change would be this historical hangover of these these tyrants on the podium that have set musicians and conductors apart i think that's it's 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 always hard in general the relationship starts starts from a point of maybe not antagonism but being in different courts them and us and you, yeah and you you have to you hope you 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 unite these two different worlds and so they see you as one of them or at least somebody that they can trust um 
even socially, I mean, it's it's great guest conducting, in fact, because, you know, there's a little more latitude in terms of being able to 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 chat to the players and maybe have a beer or whatever. Um, but there's still this this distance. And I think we're all working towards the same goal. And if we recognize that, well, you know, things are changing, I suppose. Orchestras and, and conductors there's less of the us, us and them than there used to be. But still, when you walk into a new orchestra for the first time, it's something you have to surmount. Here, here. I agree with you completely. Um, I think it is getting better. I think more musicians realise that actually the the guy or the girl on the box is not there just to rake in a huge fee, be a dictator uh, and make your life a misery, that most of them are coming at it from the, I want to make music with you and let's do this the best way possible, please angle i think more musicians are realizing that um i think that there will always be you know I, I make a debut next week on monday morning i stand in front of the lati symphony orchestra for the first time in finland there will always be a moment of you know 70 or 80 people looking up are you going to think you're right what are you going to be like and how are you going to affect the next four days of my life um and i think there will always be that whether they yeah. they want to be collegial with you or whether they expect you to be more dictatorial but I, you know, I think more musicians these days are wanting to, you know, not embrace, but at least not push away the person who stood on the podium, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, but I that's completely right. agree with you. It's scary, isn't it? That first yeah. day of rehearsal is always the moment of truth. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm lucky next week I go with a program of music that I devised and I've conducted before elsewhere. So it's stuff oh, that that's I know. Right. Yeah, stuff I can immediately get get right into, get my hands dirty, you know, take my jumper off, get my hands wringing wet and get in there and get working, you know. But but yeah, it is it always it is always scary. I just think it's got slightly less scary than it used to be. Um but there yes. are still people there who want to fight you. Uh, I've had that as well, just before yep. the pandemic. It happens. Yeah, and it's better and... than more musicians who try to learn to conduct, and and then they realise that it's not so easy. Absolutely, I I totally agree with that. I think it should be compulsory that everybody in a professional orchestra should spend fifteen minutes conducting them. Uh, then you'd realise yes. quite how difficult it is, and um and you know what it's like to look out at a sea of of you know uh, angry faces. Uh, going back on the going back on the point that I I made about you know meeting somebody who wanted a fight just before the pandemic. Have spent a lot of time as we all did during lockdown thinking about it because it was one of the last gigs I did before the pandemic hit. I've now realized that if that ever happened to me again, I would quite happily turn around to the orchestra and say, I'm sorry, I'm not here for this. I don't care how big the fee is, I'm not willing to put up with this. And I would just walk out and walk away and go home. I'm not willing to put up with some, somebody to, who wants a fight with me because they don't like me and who I've never met. I would literally just walk out and go home. Um, and, yeah, my life is too short for me to want to win over a, you know, uh, insert expletive here person. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, question number nine. I've had every single possible answer. Um, the most popular being airline pilot. I wonder whether having sat on one, you wish to be a pilot quite so often. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I, I, I really enjoy cooking, particularly yeah. Chinese food because it's my heritage. But I, I don't think that the, you know, we, the hours of, of, of traveling as a conductor and performing on the weekends are sort of antisocial. 
but the hours of a chef are even more oh, worse. Yeah, yeah. So I think I would quite like to have a little Airbnb somewhere beautiful. Well, not an Airbnb because I don't like that company. A, a, just a regular old B&B and just cook for interesting people who came through, not have to do it to order, but, you know, have a couple of rooms and, and just live in a beautiful place, cook for people, have some nice wine with people. And then the other thing I would quite like to attempt, this is a bit naughty actually, but I, I wouldn't mind trying to be a director because the number of times I've sat through opera productions where the director is not getting any of his, his or her information from the score and from the music, it just drives me to distraction. So, so you know, it'd be interesting to try that profession. Well, that that director thing has come up in the past. I remember Roy Goodman talking about it. You know, in some of the Handel operas he's done, he did, where he you know he mentioned the fact that none of the directions seem to be have anything to do with the score whatsoever. The director had just grabbed the story and gone off in a completely different direction with it. Um, I like the 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 B and B answer. I suspect your B and B would be pretty near the coast, um, so that you know. Well, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On your downtime, you can get out there and and swim or scuba dive. Um, and I agree with you about Airbnb. I've I've done it once. Normally, of course, conductors are put up in hotels. It depends on how the orchestra does it. Some of them give you a budget and you sort out your own accommodation. Mm-hmm. Others will put you up in a hotel that they have a deal with, and and they, that's where you always stay. I did it once. I hated it. Um, living in somebody else's flat with their shoes in the corner and you know their cornflakes in the cupboard and I just, no, I, no, I don't. I'm never doing it again. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I think I, yeah, cooking cooking for people who appreciate it rather than as you said, brutal the hours that chef, uh, chefs. And it's also very similar to the job we do. You're in charge of a team of chefs underneath you, and yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, uh, very good answer. And seeing as we're talking about food and cooking, we come to the final question and my favourite of the lot. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I would start off with some cocktails. I really enjoy a Negroni and a wet martini with a twist, in fact. So with mm-hmm. a bit more vermouth than just than 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 is usual. Yeah. And then it have to be fresh seafood, Queensland prawns, Tasmanian oysters with some really good vintage champagne. And then it then it'd be onto the Chinese food. So yes. it'd be my, my my secret my my dad's recipe, this family recipe of soy sauce chicken, there'd be roast duck. There would be these thick hand pulled noodles that that uh that are common in Xi'an. And I've never had such chewy, delicious, nutty noodles with wonderful sauces as I have had in Xi'an. And a range of vegetable dishes, Chinese mushrooms and omelettes and lobster. I mean, I just think the Chinese cuisine has the greatest range of food you could ever want to eat. There's something for everybody. And then I think I'd finish with a pavlova with tropical fruit and some more of that vintage champagne. <laughs> Wonderful. I was nodding away through the Chinese section of your menu because I am a huge fan of Chinese cooking. Um, I've never conducted in, 
in China. I do hope to one day. Uh, well, no, it's a lie. I did once conduct a Royal Philharmonic concert orchestra in Beijing. We went there. I was there for two days, and we had a wonderful meal after the concert. Um, but I've never gone and conducted a Chinese orchestra, and I would love to purely because I could spend my off time going to local restaurants and and trying out food. And yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant choice. Um, yeah, I, my mouth was salivating. It's only ten to twelve. And I'm not going to eat until later on. But yeah, I was salivating. I always know it's a good answer when when I start salivating. So brilliant. And brilliant it's been, Dane. Really enjoyed chatting to you. And I hope very soon, uh, maybe not the vintage champagne, maybe between us we can't afford it, but we can sit down over a beer and a Chinese somewhere in the world and carry on chatting. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mike. Next time I'm in the UK, we can sit down for that Chinese and maybe we can just get some non-vintage champagne. <laughs> A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Finnish conductor who has held multiple title positions in his home country, as well as being a very successful composer. He's also known as being a highly regarded conducting teacher and has been teaching at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki since 1991. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>